Metricast. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley, hi. And today we are talking about Oscar-nominated Best Motion Picture of the Year, Ford versus Ferrari. This one's a tough one for me, Wes. I don't have my rating yet and am not going to commit to good or boring until after our discussion. I'm going to convince you. Really? Uh-huh. You know, I've polled a lot of people about this movie. Really? And their responses are quite drastically different. Yeah, Dad's was weird, right? Totally. Dad's one that I wouldn't have expected. Dad said that, eh, it, he, what do you say, he didn't connect? He didn't connect with it or he didn't identify with it because auto racing and golf in his mind aren't sports. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> and then what did Mom say? Uh, Mom had to convince Dad that he had seen it in the first place. And Mom usually, Mom's rating system is infallible, right? She's like, it's good. It's either, for mom, it's either good or, or if it's bad, she doesn't even remember it. That's, you know, it's funny. It's a little bit similar to mine. I mean, it's a little black and white. But um, she loved it. And, and there are other people, like Joanna, loved it. Brian loved it. I was wondering if it's a dude movie. Are you a dude? I'm a dude. But you're not like a dude dude. You're not like a dude's dude. I'm contemptuous of some sports. I'm kind of a dude. When, like, Avengers and, like, Rambo and stuff, you're like, yeah! Like, I'm that kind of dude, I guess. Yeah. But you also have a sensitive side to you, which I think this movie would appeal to that side of you as well. I guess so. All right. So, well, I mean, let's get started. Convince me. The reason that I went into Ford versus Ferrari with some level of excitement or anticipation is James Mangold. He's one of the best work directors working today. Um, I really, really like his style. I think that... His remake of 310 to Yuma about 10 years ago was great. Made me like Russell Crowe again. Also starred Christian Bale. Was wondering what he was going to do to follow up. Uh, it ended up being Logan. Stylistically, it was a fun, dirty, engaging kind of movie. Kind of a dude movie. I think he did that great justice. James Mangold was selected to helm the Boba Fett Star Wars movie. When Disney took over Lucasfilm and they were going to make a bunch of Star Wars movies, the plan was to make one every year in perpetuity for all of eternity. That kind of fizzled out after Solo to their expectations underperformed. So all of the spin-off, one-off movies, Rogue One and Solo, were all we got from the non-canonical episode movies. Does that make sense? Yeah. James Mangold was going to do Boba Fett, who I was sure was going to make it very cool. Uh, we do have a Boba Fett-ish character in The Mandalorian, which I have not seen. Mm -hmm. But I was really excited. Like The Force Awakens, I thought if anybody could take up the reins and make a convincing Star Wars movie, it would be J.J. Abrams. And if anyone was going to take a cool character and kind of make it gritty and real, it would be James Mangold. He didn't do it. Um, I guess maybe the world is lesser for it. But he did get his hands on this movie. And I think he made a solid race car movie. I mean, I wonder how much of the, the driving could have been, the driving couldn't have been real, actually. I was thinking how much of the driving was faked. 
but that's kind of the key for James Mangold because we've seen lots of driving movies, right? Rush. Rush was a recent one with uh, Thor and uh, Daniel Brühl. Daniel Brühl, who was in Inglorious Bastards, and that one was good. And I think like. Ford versus Ferrari, it was good because it was practical. A lot of it was practical, as much as they could. Certainly, there are some effects in this movie, but keeping it grounded and keeping it practical is really, really effective when you're dealing with machinery and and driving and stunts, you know? Yeah, Rush like Ford versus Ferrari was also a total bromance. Yeah, I liked Rush, and it was the only movie outside of Thor that I think Chris Hemsworth was convincing in. Ooh. I, I didn't see the faux Moby Dick movie. No, Cabin in the Woods. Good. Oh, yeah. That was good. I felt like he was playing himself in Cabin in the Woods. Uh, except American. Right. What other racing movies are there? And racing movies, by the way, kind of strike me like running movies. <laughs> they don't give you a lot of cinematic leeway. Just faster? Yeah. Unfortunately, nowadays... When you think racing movies, too many people think of The Fast and the Furious. Oh, yeah. Which is definitely effects heavy. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost a comical effect. Right. I mean, they're, they're pretty silly, but they're also cool. They do have, you know, practical cars on set, and they're doing cool things in cars, and they have world-class stunt drivers. Um, it's just the way it's shot. And anytime you're going to do a, a really big wides for movies like that, where there's tanks and helicopters and you kind of have to rely on effects, and that seems like an obvious cheat. Yeah, it's um, the Fast and the Furious movies are kind of like the Transformers movies, where you know, like nothing really kind of makes sense and real, like logically cuts together, but you get the feeling that they're trying to convey. Like you get, okay, this is supposed to be cool and this is supposed to be epic, but really, like when you piece the, the when you piece the sequences together, shot by shot, it doesn't really make sense. Like the Transformers don't really have a logic to how they come together, but you see them moving around and you get the idea, okay, now they're transforming. Where they do extreme close-ups and you see gears moving and stuff locking into place, but practically speaking, it's not possible that they would transform like that, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, but it, like, like you're saying, it's, it's a different universe. The Fast and the Furious movies, you have to suspend your disbelief for all the crazy things that cars can do. Whereas in Ford versus Ferrari, it was all about the limitations of cars, uh, seemingly uh, inhuman drivers. Certainly, Christian Bale's character of Ken was a godlike driver in cars that had limitations. And he was only waiting for the car to get him to 7 RPM where it could vanish underneath him and he could do exactly what he needed to do without the limitations of a car holding him back. Hmm. I like that. I like that the story motivates the filmmaking which, like you said, is fairly grounded. Like the story was, a, it was grounded in a in a kind of limitation and in a reality, and therefore the I think that kind of informed the directing. Yeah, we spent a lot of time under the hood of the Ford, and no time under the hood of the mythical Ferrari. This uh, constant flawless machine that won Le Mans however many years in a row, and is also beautiful to behold. Right, the the low profile and the iconic red paint and Ferrari was larger than life and they were building a car from the ground up. Yeah, it's a good observation. Want to know how much I knew about this film going in? Yes. I saw Matt Damon and Christian Bale on the billboards with the title Ford versus Ferrari and I thought that Matt Damon was Ford 
and Christian Bale was Ferrari. I, I'm in the same position. I think it was because Matt Damon was wear, probably wearing a cowboy hat or not. <laughs> but I was like, that's weird because they kept calling it. But in the, even in the trailer, we know who Carol Shelby is. Shelby has long been associated with Mustangs and his particular Mustang uh, performance-wise. Uh, so I knew that he was playing Carol Shelby. But I did think that Christian Bale was Ferrari. Oh my God, you've just like relieved so much like inferior guilt I had. You know, we were raised by dad. Dad doesn't think auto racing is a sport. So, but I think as with most movies, going in without much of a clue, except for the excitement about the director, helped to carry me along for this movie. I didn't know what was gonna happen. Um, they were up against some pretty, pretty tough competition and kind of like, like Apollo 13 or something. The date was looming, and it was kind of life or death when they got there, for all intents and purposes, and they only had one shot to do it. So I'm glad you brought up Apollo 13, because like Apollo 13, I thought that Ford versus Ferrari was very Americana, bordering on jingoistic, like very America-centric. And I think that in my first false start watching this movie, that is what caused me to be like, meh, and I checked out and I fell asleep. I had a second false start with this movie where I was like, I gotta watch it. And I was like, eh, I got other things to do. That's how not engaging it was for me. Upon third viewing, I made it through. And I, have, I enjoyed it. I'm giving you an opportunity, by the way, to convince me. I enjoyed it. There were moments where I, I, I was laughing out loud or I was gleefully commenting to Brian. But um, there were a lot of moments that just felt formulaic and pat and boring. Like when she, when the wife is introduced at the garage and they have that little flirty conversation, pretending like they don't know each other and then revealing that they do, like just fell so flat for me. And even their initial argument between Carol Shelby and Ken Miles when he throws the wrench, I like loved the performance, but it just didn't feel real. And Josh Lucas, who played Leo Beebe, he was so caricaturish. And then the, the driver for a Ferrari at the end and his glares, come on. He was a spaghetti Western Italian. Seriously, I'm really torn because I had, there were enjoyable moments and there were moments that felt totally flat and pat to me. You can separate those moments, yes. I think, and you can separate what you liked about it and what you didn't like about it. And that's kind of what I was forced to do in liking this movie. Again, I have ultimate faith in James Mangold for making a gritty, realistic, captivating movie. However, 310 to Yuma was, uh, was a, a hard R. Logan was definitely a hard R. Ford versus Ferrari PG-13. So I think that in making a larger movie, this is his biggest, most ambitious movie to date, he had those restrictions. He had the studio behind him. He had his Ford, who wants to protect the brand. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the studio behind him, which was his Henry Ford II, uh, keeping him in check across the board, I would guess, because those false moments, those moments that fell flat for you did exist in, that, in this movie, and they didn't exist, I don't think, in Logan, where I think he had kind of free reign to make a gritty superhero movie and make it, make it really compelling, and 310 to Yuma. I think, yes, the meeting of Christian Bale, the introduction of his wife, the throwing of the wrench, especially when she pulled the chair out of the garage and sat down to watch oh, them fight on the lawn and they toast. Uh, there were several moments like that that were cringeworthy. Mm -hmm. And I think that was 
pandering to a broader audience. Mm. I think it was the tropes of gotta also make it kind of funny and cute and relatable on a family level. Mm -hmm. All that vanished for me at 7,000 RPMs. When it really kicked into gear and they were racing, I glossed over those moments to get us into the car and on the track where I was happiest. So whether it was the rating limitation or interference from studio or studio executives, you feel like James Mangold was a little hand-tied on this film? I think it was service to the studio or to the executives or the powers that be, which is ironic given how, how much Ken rebelled to Ford and the whole idea of playing ball. Well, that was another one of my issues with this film, is that Ken's arc is that he comes around to play ball. And it's his spirit and his rebelliousness that made him what it was. I felt like his arc turned him against himself. And I had a real problem with that at the end. I had a real problem with rejoicing with him in the end. Not to mention that it also led him to lose, ultimately lose Le Mans. Well, I don't know that he was rejoicing. I think that like some other characters we've discussed this year, Ken is a self-sabotaging character. I think he was, uh, he knows racing. He was almost like his character in The Big Short, where he's hyper-focused, amazingly proficient at a single thing, and beyond that, he seemed to be a respectable family man, but he just couldn't get along. He couldn't play ball. He wasn't the right person, a good person, until he got behind the wheel of a car, and then he was an excellent person. So I think that him trying to accommodate was as big a mistake as him bucking the system entirely. If he, he goes by his own instincts, he gets in a car, he drives. That's what he does. He may not be the best person to represent Ford, but he's definitely, as Carol Shelby says, the best person to put in that car. And when he compromises, he loses. That's kind of his thing. When he, even outside of the car, he it was just destined not to find greatness except with the help of other people. Hmm. We know that he has to melt down at some point, right? Um, he's asked to be in the car. He's asked to make concessions. Uh, he, he kind of gracefully accepts them, at least with Matt, Matt Damon's character. He doesn't rage and doesn't you know, threaten Ford or anything like that. But I knew that it was coming, right? The, the, the big screw it, I don't care what Ford says, I'm going to do what I was born to do kind of thing. You've given me the opportunity, that was a mistake, and now I'm going to take it. So I expected him to refuse. And when he didn't, I was actually surprised. I was surprised uh, too. Surprised in a good way in that you think maybe he understands how he got to be in this position. It's not all about him. It's about the team of Ford and, and, and Shelby going to bat for him. Someone that he never wanted to concede would be instrumental in his success or him reaching his full potential. So when he slowed down, I was surprised, but also encouraged because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I never thought for a minute that he would cross the finish line and everything would be hunky-dory. I wondered what was going to go wrong hmm. when he concedes to Ford. Um, so in that way, the ending wasn't predictable to me, and that made it a better ending. Yeah. Um, it wasn't uh, certainly wasn't a success story because whether or not he won, he was gone two months later. Yeah. You know? That's tough. Yeah. That was certainly a bummer. Yeah, and man, this movie had like four endings. Yeah, right? tell me about it. Kept going. And again, I think it was in service of... Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, 
a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. ElectroCast. Softening the blows a little bit and making it more palatable for everyone. Like give them Daytona and give them a Le Mans lap record and then blow them up. It felt like a genius filmmaker playing nice. I definitely felt like when we were in Daytona, I was like, we still have to go to Le Mans. Like, how much longer are we going to be in this? The movie felt big in scope. It never felt really long to me. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure here, this was the first movie that I watched by myself on my brand new 75-inch 4K television. It was glorious. <laughs> so, And I got to watch it all the way through. I fondly remember the crappy Poseidon Adventure remake with Fergie called Poseidon because otherwise a completely forgettable movie that I'm sure you haven't even heard of mm -mm. because it was the first movie that I saw in IMAX. Mm. Way too close for an IMAX screen. Full-size IMAX. It was crazy immersive and loud and exciting for an otherwise crappy movie. Can't help it. So I was watching it on a big TV and... Uh, and I was, it was pretty thrilling all the way through. And I like that I wasn't able to see where it was going. I like that too. I have to admit, the ending surprised me. When, when he won Daytona, I thought, where could they possibly go with Le Mans? He can't win Le Mans. Then it's just repetitive beat. Why have Le Mans if he wins Daytona? So I didn't see where they were going with it. And I certainly didn't expect him to die in the end. Like it seemed an unnecessary beat. Like that could have been in the coda. I don't know if it was a that was a necessary beat. I'm not sure. I feel like Ken's death was a coda, in a way, because it happened off screen, basically. And I wasn't sold on the meeting with the son until he sat in the car and kind of teared up and was mm. really struggling with his emotions because everything that he kept in check, because we never really got into the Carol Shelby character's head. We never saw his family life. I don't know if the man had a family or has a family. Mm. He's still around. Um, didn't have much of a personal perspective on him. Mm -hmm. He was the tough-talking Texas Texan at work. Mm -hmm. You know, he it, it was almost like he was a George Bush Jr. type <laughs> of character where he was just, he was always at work and he always had his cowboy hat on and his drawl. Never got to see much emotion from the guy yeah. uh, except for anger and frustration until the end when he really realized that he really understood that he lost a friend yeah. and that the boy had lost his father and obviously um, wasn't able to go and have the conversation with his wife and I think that was the right choice to make but we got to see a little bit of emotion and Matt Damon sold it in an otherwise relatively flat performance. I think he was serviceable but I think that it was Christian Bale's time to shine and be crazy uh, as he does. Matt Damon, a little flat, but convincing. I felt like his accent was pretty good. This was no fault of his. It wasn't. It, the character was fairly one note across the board. Right. Not his fault, and he did what he could. So I'm saying he convinced me when he had an emotional scene where we didn't get much except to, to read from except the look on his face. Whereas the son, I felt, was pretty false. He did a lot of those wide-eyed, ad admiring remarks like, whoa, and oh, the perfect lap. Like he was there to be a foil to his dad and add a, lot, a little bit of exposition. But I thought the kid just played into the whole kid thing too much, especially vis-a-vis -vis his performance in Honey Boy, which I thought was great and really convincing. 
Yeah, he's in a different kind of movie. I think his role was pretty standard for Kid of Hero. This movie definitely had problems and it was held back by its rating, not only in what they chose to show and what not to show, but in the scenes that maybe they felt would appeal to a wider audience that didn't appeal, uh, didn't appeal to people who were going to review it. Are we people reviewing it? Yes. This is something I struggle with. Are we movie reviewers or critics? Yeah. We're also influencers. Really? Yeah. What's your social media following? I have a few. <laughs> um, and you are strongly influencing those few. I think that the characters in this movie were, like you said, the Josh Lucas character. Yeah. Types. Yeah. But it was nice to see some of them in roles that expanded awareness of them a little bit. John Bernthal. John Bernthal, who was a big galoot in The Walking Dead and a big galoot in Sicario, and I thought was never really going to find his, his niche outside of the heavy. So he played Shane in The Walking Dead, and Shane never seemed destined for the boardroom. He wasn't, you know, but John Barenthal in this role, uh, and he was the Punisher also on yeah. Netflix, right? Um, wouldn't have been the person that I would have expected to run the boardroom and be a suit. And I thought he did a really good role. It was nice to see him in a role. John Barenthal as the Lee Iacocca character becomes, uh, you know, he transcends this role in Ford and becomes something much larger, as we all know. So it was good to, to see him blah, blah, blah in a role. So I think it's worth mentioning that this movie was nominated for Academy Awards in both sound uh, editing and mixing. Yes. Um, very important. The Star Wars movies, George Lucas, I never thought had, I mean, he's a visionary. He's just not a very good dialogue writer. But you can't fault George Lucas for his vision and being able to create universes that nobody else has created, right? Immersive that we've been living in for decades now. But the strongest part about the Star Wars movies for me has always been the sound. I don't know the difference between sound design or sound effects editing. It's all a little bit hazy and confusing. I do know that Star Wars had amazing sound. And across the board, I would watch for those for different sounds when different movies came up. And, you know, the stuff that we find that that's... Uh, part of our, our culture now, the iconic lightsaber sounds and the blaster sounds and the, the screaming of the TIE fighters, all that stuff is really good. Sound design was really important for the Star Wars movies. Um, it was really important in Ford versus Ferrari because we realized the technical limitations of these cars. We're listening and they're on the track and, and the Ferrari has that constant purring growl. It's on the track and you think, how are we going to beat these guys? And I was listening for every sound that Ford made, every squeak when the brakes pulled into, you know, when he pulled into pit, um, any rattle that was happening in the car, I was so closely attuned. It just added a complete, a wholly different dimension. Really effective at putting us in the driver's seat helping us to sympathize with what they were experiencing. And look, I gotta say, this brings me to my final point, which is why I enjoyed this movie. This movie is, I can't help it, it's the dude in me, but this movie is the reason that I love movies. Um, I don't care about the world of racing, but I was caught up. It was a long time coming to get to Le Mans, but I was swept up and really, really, I couldn't wait to get there any more than they did, as much as they were dreading it and the limitations that they faced and the challenge that they were about to face, not knowing the outcome, I couldn't wait. And I was carried away. By your 75 inch TV. By my 75 inch TV. And 
after this movie was over. So I jumped in the car. I realized I had to get gas. I peeled into the, the gas station. I, I uh, skinned my knuckles trying to get that gas cap off as fast as possible. I did a pit stop, got back on the road, and I was doing 85 and weaving and stuff. I got all jazzed and I got all, all you know all fired up driving the car to work. <laughs> and, and that's what this movie did to me. It, it amped me up. But you're a dude. And yeah. I think maybe I'm not a dude. I mean, yeah. as dude-like as I can be sometimes, I'm, I'm definitely not a dude. And I'm going to have to say that this movie was boring for There's me. no way this movie is boring. There could be things that you don't like about it. This would be a good candidate for our segment on what sucks about this movie. Because I think it's obvious that some of the, the, the scenes, the non-racing scenes, were just a little bit too pat and too cutesy and were tools of lesser movies. But... You can't tell me that you weren't thrilled by the characters and where they ended up and the concessions they made, the sacrifices they made, and going 210 miles an hour with brakes on fire. There were some complicated elements that brought dimensionality and realness to this film, but ultimately I couldn't be immersed in it. It was, I was so immersed and I was so carried away. I, I was so immersed that I chose to ignore the flaws in this movie. I have to recommend this movie. I think you should totally watch this movie, no matter who you are, because you'll have the crap that will appeal to a larger audience. But for purists who love practical filmmaking and compelling story and characters, and Christian Bale goes as nuts in this movie as he had in any other role. So you have all the Academy hallmarks. You have everything you need for that kind of movie. You also have the thrills and, and all the crap that you need to make a successful movie. I hope this movie does well. I don't think it's gonna do very well at the Academy Awards, but I personally like this movie. That's the thing, I mean, it's not that I wouldn't recommend this film. It's not that I would deter people from watching it. But me, as a film watcher, as a film lover, didn't do it for me. Boring. I think that's your first official boring review in the era of our podcast and because we've mostly been watching awards bait. Exactly. Right? We've been covering the big movies that are, are going head-to-head -head at the Academy Awards. And so far, this is your lowest rated movie is what you're saying? I mean, I guess you have to take the movies on a case-by-case -case basis. Because really, if I step back and I compare Ford versus Ferrari to Dolomite, which got a good rating, it's a little hard to justify. All right, case by case basis. There was too much of it not doing it for me. So that when it did, it wasn't enough. I had exactly the opposite. I was carried away and thrilled enough so that when lesser elements happened, I, did, I was able to forgive them. Well, there you have it our first official disagreement. I hate to think that it has to do with genders. What do you think? Tell us, or whatever. Leave us a voicemail at 818-835-0473. Send us an email at orwhatevermovies at gmail.com. We really want to hear from you. We really want to get some user engagement on this show. So please let us know, and thanks for listening. Thank you. Welcome, explorers of the human experience. This is Let's Talk Soul, and I'm your host, Claudia Monicelli. We're not afraid of the great mysteries of existence here. Soul versus consciousness, we're on it. Spirituality versus science, we've got that covered too. Join us in navigating these profound topics with wisdom, curiosity, and a dash of audacity. 
Whether you're a spiritual veteran or just starting your journey, Let's Talk Soul is your passport to the unknown. Let's Talk Soul, diving into the depths of the human spirit. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.